Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Horning and this is the Hoffman Podcast. I'm so excited today. We have Aaron Weed, who, um, Aaron, you and I know each other, but would you introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, well, I went through the Hoffman process in 2013 and for work, I am the creator of a process called The Dig, which helps people unearth their purpose and distill it down to just one word. I also work with public leaders and conscious thought leaders to amplify their messages into the world. Nice. And I was just looking at your revamped website, or maybe it's revamped since I last saw it. And and there were like three great things in a row. I'm like, damn, this is some good marketing. <laughs> it was like, find your truth, amplify your message. What was it? Uh, it's uh, clarify your purpose, simplify your message and amplify your truth. Clarify your purpose, simplify your message and amplify your truth. That's some good stuff right there. Yeah, thanks. So um, I went through your process of the dig and your Ivoso speaking thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was profound for me to get clarity first on on one word. Would you talk a little bit about this kind of one word idea? Yeah. Well, I learned it when I was working with TED speakers and uh, I had just, uh, I actually sold my first company that I started the day I got on the airplane to go to the process which is so crazy. And then, um, and then after the process, I ended up starting this, this new company to help these people, these really smart, accomplished people to distill their big ideas, um, into a Ted talk, which, uh, if anybody's not familiar with Ted talks, they're, they're short talks. So they're usually 18 minutes or less. And basically I was finding that some of these genius people were having a very difficult time with the distillation process or, they would be excellent subject matter experts. However, they couldn't quite tie it to a bigger thing. And the whole objective with a TED Talk is you want to reach the entire world. You can't really niche down a TED Talk because it's it's all online and it's really for anyone to consume. So I realized that I had to get, help these people get to a universal truth. And a universal truth is going to be something that all humans can relate to. And so I found that it brought the leader a lot of clarity and simplicity to just whittle it all down to what do we want people to feel in the room? Is it around um, freedom or abundance or um, liberate or authenticity? Or, I mean, it could be anything and you can talk about any subject matter, but if you have a lens on what is just the overarching vibe you want to create, then everyone in the room is going to feel it. So I created the dig um, just purely out of necessity to help these people. And then I started realizing after a few people started going viral, I started realizing that maybe the dig is more applicable just to than just for leaders. And so now I do the dig for anyone that just wants to distill their their the meaning of their life purpose and their life path down to the one word. Awesome. And your word is? My word is authentic. 
And I always feel the need to give a little disclaimer that it's it's not a descriptor word. It's the word that best describes your life path, meaning it's the thing you're here to both learn and teach. Therefore, we are usually um, very successful in the word, but we're also, we all have a big shadow around the word as well. Ah, I like that. My word was courage. Uh-huh. And when you when you do this, I was thinking about your process. You you joked that you abuse sticky notes, <laughs> and um, I you're a I what I got in part besides my own word and your help around creating a talk as well in in the more advanced part of the work you do. What I also got was that you're a good listener. <laughs> Do you see yourself as a good listener? Um, I do, but I listen doesn't quite capture how I am with people. Is it deeper than that? What would you say? You know, it feels like deep presence. And in order for me to to witness and experience people the way that I do, um, I have to leave my world behind. So there is a, a meditative aspect to, I always start off my sessions with a meditation so I can clear out any stuff from my personal life or getting my kids ready for school that day or anything that's stressing me out, an email I have to respond to. I have to leave it all behind, leave, leave my bubble and join someone in theirs. And that well, is the best way. I just got to jump in because so much of what we talk about in the process, I wonder if you remember it is filling your own cup so that then you can be present for others. There's so much of what you're saying that I relate to what we teach in the process. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I am sure um, a lot of what I do, I, I learned there around, uh, first of all, being, being connected to spirit. I mean, that's probably the biggest reason I, I wouldn't say that what I'm doing is listening. I'm I'm so connected to spirit and I'm, it's almost like I'm witnessing someone and spirit at the same time. Mm, Listening seeing, doesn't quite capture it. It, it feels <laughs> like an experience. <laughs> Aaron, I think you were downright offended when I said the word listening. It's so much more than that. <laughs> no, I'm actually grateful you said that and, and that I had that response because, um, you know, I'm understanding this whole process as I go and yeah. I am learning about it all the time. And so it's questions that like that, that really help me unpack what it is. It feels like it's my spiritual practice. Yeah, I love that. The work you do is your spiritual practice. And um, share a little bit about, you know, you, you've talked about Girls Fight Back and the motivation for why you did that. Can you, you know, it's funny in, the, in all the time we've hung out, I'm not sure you've talked much about Shannon and the impact that that had on you. Yeah. So, um, so Girls Fight Back was the company that I sold the day that I came to Hoffman. And that was a company that I started in 2001 after one of my best friends from college named Shannon McNamara was murdered while fighting off an attacker in her apartment. And um, this was, it, it was late the night of June, June 11th, 2001, exactly three months to the day later, 9-11 happened. And I was living in New York at the time and commuted to the World Trade Center every day. And so within 90 days, there had been extreme violence in my personal life and in Shannon's death, and then extreme violence in in my home, you know, as far as uh, the home of New York City. 
And uh, it, it just, it led me to shift paths. And I, I actually ended up getting fired from my job. <laughs> At the time I was in television production and uh, not a super forgiving industry for having emotional meltdowns <laughs> like I was having at that time, trying to deal with all the trauma, you know? And yeah. um, I decided just to learn more about personal safety and self-defense merely out of just being able to sleep at night at first. I was so anxious. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? I, I mean, I was 22, 23 at the time. I was like, young women would take this so much better from me than from some campus cop. And I started putting it together, uh, putting together a program that was very social and hip and almost like if MTV made it with ass kicking, you know, and, and I really wanted to shift the whole social structure so that it was cool to defend yourself versus what we're what's thrown at us as young women in schools, which is like, don't dress like a slut so you don't get raped. And it's just like, that is that, totally. Aaron, is that, was that really some of the gist of the messages that how they communicate it? Oh yeah, like the uh, the little safety tips that you get on these little laminated cards when you go to college is things like that. Don't walk alone at dark after dark. Like what? Who who who's going to go through an entire college existence and not be able to walk alone after after dark, you know? It's all very restrictive. Uh, what we wear, where we go, if we can drink or not, you know, and I'm just like, you know, I feel like we should be all be able to do whatever it is that is is calling us. It feels more reactive than than how you want to just show up. And is that part of the motivation? Like, let's not just react to this. Let's be more um, active in how we're living in the world. Yes, exactly. It's it's about taking owning your personal power and taking control. And also, um, and you know this um, from just working with me, I, I like to have fun, you know? I mean, I like to keep it light, keep it cool, like have a good time. And even if you're talking about rape and murder and violence and, and even in sh sharing Shannon's story, I did my absolute best to not re-traumatize people from simply talking about the topic and, and keeping it as empowering and enjoyable as, as humanly possible. Mm. So, so did that, I hear that, you know, not being able to sleep, worried about your own safety, thinking about the, even seeing it as the trauma combined with what happened at 9-11. And did doing Girls Fight Back help resolve some of those unresolved feelings? Yes and no. Um, I do think for me, helping other people helps myself, but I also did not go through a typical grieving process because everything was so traumatic in such a short amount of time. And one of, one of my shadows is that when bad things happen, I go into immediate response mode and I'm a very high performer. So a lot of people look to me for that leadership, but it's at the expense of my own emotional well-being because I don't have the feelings that I need to have in order to healthily move through it. Uh, so on the outside, you're functioning and on the inside, it's something's not working. Yes. And, and I will say this does tie back to some of my childhood stuff that, that I was able to finally move through at Hoffman after like literally the day I sold Girls Fight Back, which I, I think that timing is rather serendipitous because as a child, 
there was a lot of chaos in, in our situation. And uh, it kind of made me be a very reactive, strong leader, but it also taught me to stifle. I see. So can you, um, because this is a Hoffman podcast and we do get vulnerable, is there a, and you're a good storyteller, you know, it's, it's one thing to hear. I came from a chaotic household, but sometimes an anecdote illustrates that. Is there a moment in time in your childhood that sticks out for you as, wow, this is not okay. This is problematic. This isn't working for me. Yeah. Uh, it, and mine was a little tricky because it was joyful, but it was also challenging. Uh, when mm. I was five, I I came from a family of uh, just two parents who, who were my natural parents. I had an older brother. And then when I was five, we adopted two kids and they were natural brother and sister. And we basically got them 24 hours later. And they were both coming out of a pretty harsh situation. And it basically threw our entire family into chaos. We went from total Pleasantville with very grounded, attentive parents to just everyone trying to keep their sanity. And and it, it's caused me a lot of uh, guilt over the years because I had this grief around the the family of four. I still deal with it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, at the same time, I can't imagine my life without my two adopted siblings, and they're very, very yeah. close to me. And so, it, I never wanted to voice it. I, you know, just adopted the story that is just the best thing that ever happened, and it and it was. And I don't think I properly made space for the grief. Yeah. So, so much of what we teach in a process is to get away from either or good, bad, this forced polarity of black and white thinking and instead to hold both as true. Yeah. I imagine holding that, that these two siblings that became Insta family for you guys was both an amazing thing and in a way a tragic thing for a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And the you know the fam the family dynamic was forever changed and has never gone back and it never yeah. will. So how you you spoke a little bit about referencing that experience in the process. How were you able to do that? I mean, without getting into the specifics of it, that's a that's a big hurdle, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, What I realized in the process was that it actually wasn't about my brother and sister who were adopted. It was about the grief and the anger at my parents for, for basically tipping over the apple cart. And, Mm -hmm. and so the process allowed me the, the space and the grace to, to go into that and to get to know my parents as children. And as I did that, I, I met two kids who were both very abused and all they wanted was a big family that cared about them. And it, it helped me understand the logic. And, you know, even now I just, I feel like a little choked up even thinking about it. Just, um, so that they adopted 
as a way of getting some of the needs met that they never got in their childhood. Yeah, they always told me that they wanted to have 13 kids. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was always like, what? And it was never until the process and I and I saw them not as my parents, but as two individuals who were processing their own wounds and their own pain and and seeing, oh, they just want full hearts, you know? Mm. What did you do with that information post-process? Well, um, I mean, both of my parents are still alive. I'm very close with them. And it definitely brought us closer. I will say my, my parents were not super stoked about me going to Hoffman. I think, I think they were afraid it was a cult or something. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're just, they're not anti, uh, personal development or anything. They're just, you know, when you say, Hey, I'm going away for at the time, it was like nine days, I think. And I won't be accessible. They're like, what? <laughs> yeah. But what was awesome was that I just said, listen, I got to go do this. Please trust me. Please hold space. I, you'll be the first people that I call after my children, after I get out and, and I'll, I'll share with you everything. And I did, I, I shared with them, you know, appropriately what my experience was and, and it, I don't know, it really melted some of the ah, resentment is a strong word, but I think if I had to name it, that's probably what it was very unspoken kind of resentment and, and just deep understanding. So I would say that is, that was like how it affected my relationship with them. But on a, on a larger level, uh, for me, the, the year following or years following Hoffman was what I would call a, uh, external life obliteration. <laughs> oh no. Uh -oh. <laughs> Which is not taught in Hoffman. <laughs> in fact, it was highly discouraged after Hoffman to, to make radical life changes. And, and I think that's smart. And that is what ended up being my path. And, and it was absolutely perfect for me. Hmm. So I guess I'm curious about your marriage and, and the impact of, of you finding your voice mm -hmm. um, and understanding your childhood and, and the resulting impact in your marriage. Yeah. So when I, so when I went, uh, I had two kids, I think a, like a f almost four year or yeah, I had a four year old and a one year old and I had been married for about 10 years to, to a really wonderful person who I just didn't feel we were compatible. And there was a lot of, we weren't, we weren't like a fighting kind of couple, but there was again, deep resentment, <laughs> probably a lot of unspoken stuff, which, which is my pattern. And, um, so my husband, which I think sounds nicer than X. Oh, I love that. Husband. <laughs> we'll go with that. So my husband had actually gone to Hoffman a month before I did. So it was really cool because when I got back, we had, we had a language to speak, like a common language, even in times that were pretty stressful. And, and I, I basically had to just speak my truth about some big things to him that I knew were going to be super hurtful. And, and I also knew I didn't want to be in the marriage anymore. And so we, 
it was a long road, but we, we did end up separating and getting a divorce. And, um, it was, I'm really grateful to having the common language that we both found because now I can, I can actually see his house or his, at least his neighborhood right outside of my front window here. We look very close. Well, you live right next to him. Wow. Yeah. Like two different subdivisions, but a three minute walk. And so we are, we are physically close. We, we are great co-parents. He has a fiance now and, and she's, we consider ourselves kind of a, a, a trio as far as co-parenting is concerned. And it's, it's probably the healthiest possible situation you could have if, if you're gonna get divorced. Wow. That's fantastic that you, despite all that, and he, despite all that have come together and created this um, threesome in support of your two kids. How old are they now? They are now 10 and seven. Wow. Yeah. I'm very grateful for it. it it's honestly my, my relationship really with them, like um, my husband and, and his fiance, it's probably the thing in my life that I'm most proud of. Honestly, I, I just, it's, I mean, when there's a relationship where it's like a romantic relationship and there's all this to save and, you know, that's, that's one thing. But when it's a relationship where, you know, that piece is over and you still go a thousand percent to, to learn and to grow and to be better. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. a cha- it's a most challenging relationship people can probably have. And it's the one that I'm most proud of. Yeah. I, I just have to share on, on a personal note as well. Cause I, I, a thousand percent relate to that. Um, and I got divorced too, but didn't have kids. And when I, um, did a podcast for years, um, one of the people I brought on as a, as a guest was my ex-wife. Is there a, what was been term for wife? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have an ex-wife. I don't, I don't. <laughs> yeah. So I, I brought her on as a guest and, uh, we had this great conversation and part of it was like, what happened? What was that? Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was one of the, I came out of that interview and I had more energy and more aliveness the whole rest of the day. It was, yeah. I really, really relate to the healing, energizing and kind of elevating experience of resolving um, tough relationships like that. It's not always that you get a chance to do it. And when you do do it, you do take the time and do work through it. Damn, it's worth it. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's interesting about those kinds of relationships is that there's no end game. And so it's almost like we have to be like relish in the success of it as it's happening versus the more traditional romantic approach, like you're dating someone and then you get married and there's all these milestones. But with that relationship, there there isn't one. So. Yeah, well, I guess there'll be shared milestones with the kids as they graduate from high school and college and get married and have kids. And you guys will be grandparents in a way together. Yeah. Yeah. If all goes well. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. It all goes well on so many levels. Yeah. And and just for the sake of full transparency, it wasn't always easy and it wasn't always like this. It it got pretty hairy. In fact, 
when we were in the midst of trying to move out of the house and sell the house and find new places to live and all the things, I mean, we got into kind of a screaming fight, which is not either one of our styles. We were just both so stressed. And we got into this screaming fight in front of one of our kids. And I just remember stopping mid-fight and realizing he was watching us. And I looked right at my husband and I said, this is not who we are. We're never doing this again. And he, to all his credit, he said, you're right. And to this day, we've never done that ever again. Wow. 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 That it's, I, um, I figured there had to be, um, a reason that you got divorced. I mean, it's painful enough to go through it. So, um, there had to be multiple reasons, but I, I imagine in that moment of having your son witness that, that, that that gives you the motivation and the energy to recommit to doing it differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing about any kind of transition in life, even, even though divorce is hard and, um, is that it gives you a shot to, to update who you want to be in this new reality you're stepping into. And I, I'm just not a conflict person. I mean, I'm a Libra. I came from a family where we don't talk about our feelings. So we certainly don't fight. And this was a new thing to be like, okay, I need to say what I mean and express how I feel, but not do it in a way that is like a nuclear bomb and that it's impacting and traumatizing people around me. So what's that going to look like? Beautiful. I love the, I love the question. What's it like to be talking about this? I'm not sure what you expected to talk about, but what's it like to kind of remember what transpired between you and your husband? (laughs) Well, thank you for the opportunity, first of all, because, um, and you are a great listener, I will say. (laughs) You can, you you can duel me on that if you don't like the word, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I, I am grateful for the opportunity because, um, it's, it, my, my husband is such a part of my daily life and Yet, because we do have such harmony at this point, it's rare that I reflect on what we really have as far as being healthy. Like my kids, my kids have, unless they have the memory of that one time, they really don't have memory of us being adversarial. And I, so I feel proud. There's, there's always a twinge of sadness. I think most divorced people probably have some tiny twinge of, ah, man, what a shame it couldn't work out. I feel no regrets, like zero regrets. And I know a thousand percent that it was the right thing for us. And one thing that I've learned about truth is that I know I'm in truth when I feel the feeling of resonance. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you just be like, ah, yeah. Yeah. Where, where do you, where do you know, how do you know that that feeling of resonance is happening? One of one clue is, is the feeling in the body. When I'm with a client and we're doing the dig and I see them all of a sudden, we, we hit on some word and they, their whole body just relaxes. They go, Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
And then there's usually a moment. It's a cellular thing almost. It is. It is. And you can see the the physical change and you can feel it in the room. Um, and I am, I, I'm just so addicted to like wanting to create a life where that resonance is a majority of my experience. Yeah. You, you, that you must, I mean, that must be one of the many times that you love your work. Oh, I love my work every single day. Honestly, it's, I would say the challenging part about the work and maybe you as a Hoffman teacher have experienced this is that sometimes people don't trust themselves that they're the best guardian of their own truth. Mm. And they, they attach to me instead of to their, their truth. And that, that gets a little hairy sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that that actually happens a lot in part because people's whole experience is, um, yeah, it's quite powerful, quite, quite transformative. And, you know, we say um, midway through the process that, you know, you might be experiencing a deeper connection with the world around you and with other people. But remember that it's you who is creating this aliveness, this openness, this compassion, this connection mm -hmm. that originates in you. That's yours. Don't give it away. Yeah. Is that part of what you're talking about? That is, that is. And there's almost like this panicky feeling of it's going to, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> I better have Aaron weed around more often. Otherwise it's going to go away. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, sometimes yeah. people book coaching sessions with me, which, which are available to, to help people integrate everything. But by the end of the call, I realized they just wanted me to see them for an hour. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really do relate to that. And um, what do you do in those moments in helping them turn back towards themselves? Hmm. Well, for me, I fall back on the dig process to help them do that. And one of the things we do at the end of the dig is is people write their personal manifesto. So that can take a lot of forms. For some people, it's just, you know, 10 words. For other people, it's a full statement. Some people, it's a song. But I always try to bring people back to that written creation and have them read it out loud to me. And mm. it's almost like a reclaiming of themselves and of the feeling. You know, I, I feel like... So much of what happens in my work and your work is is we create this experience so that people can have a deeply resonant like reunion with themselves, and that feels so that. good, you know. Yeah, I love that. And so that reunion and the the notion of an experience, you know. Um, I, I I was a therapist for years, and we got intellectual and analytical and. We looked at it from this perspective and then this perspective, and we turned it all different upside and down as a way of analyzing it. And in hindsight, I think, uh, I'm not sure that was helpful because part of what makes the process valuable, and it's what you're talking about, is that it's an embodied experience. It's mm -hmm. a cellular experience, and that... that um, lasts a lot longer and feels like it's more uh, towards their truth. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and can I ask a question about Shannon's parents? Are they still alive? They are, and they're still married. They still live in the same house. Yeah. You know the um, the statistics on marriages that survive the loss of a child are bad. Uh, most many many marriages die after a child dies. How have they been? Do you keep in touch with them? I do. They're, they're like second parents to me. And, you know, having them on my team as I was doing all the girls fight back stuff was so critical. And so, yeah, we are family and I can't speak to their marriage, but I can say my perception is that for them, it's community above all else. And they make so many people feel like they're family and they have, you know, air quotes, adopted so many people who need love and and unconditional belonging. It, it's it's amazing to me. In fact, to this day, I mean, we're talking, she was killed in 2001. So we're coming up on 20 years that she's been gone. There is still every year a 5K that is run out of the high school that Shannon went to. And every year the same people are there it's i have chills just talking about it and Beautiful. Uh, it's such Beautiful. a testament to you know sometimes people die and people move on and that's normal and natural and it's not that they're forgotten but they just fade you know and this, the wild thing about shannon mcnamara she has not faded she's she's transmuted but she has not faded i love that transmuted you know um when i heard you talking about um, resolving and getting over the loss of her in your life and her death. One of the things I heard was um, not just dealing with your feelings and the sadness and the pain and the loss, but actually metabolizing it in a way and and committing to a purpose beyond yourself. And then I heard you talk about her parents. And it's like, wow, they have adopted, you know, air quotes, adopted so many people and created community. I'm just aware that it it is this thing of going towards ourselves at first to ultimately liberate ourselves from ourselves and get beyond ourselves. What is our sense of purpose beyond mm -hmm. what's happening inside of us? And it seems like those are some good examples, you and Shannon's parents, and the results, uh, I guess, speak for themselves. Do you relate to that? Yeah, I do. I, I do think there is a very beautiful process in being with the change that is and figuring out where you can serve and figuring out how how can we fill that gaping hole in our lives when someone is taken away? but not not in a way that is medicating, you know, that's going to wear off at some point, that's truly going to instead move it towards healing. And I, I would say for me, I, I feel very, very connected to Shannon spiritually. And I've always felt that way. I've always considered her the CEO. And I was kind of the one taking orders and <laughs> doing stuff here. And, and uh, I've always felt like she just had other stuff to do. I, I just, 
you know, I think there's some spirits that maybe super feel attached to earth still, but I never felt that with Shannon. She was always a, she had a bit of an angelic aura about her, even when she was alive. So that always gave me peace. Yeah. Seeing, seeing a, something bigger happening. Uh, wow. I, 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 I am appreciating the way in which you are framing her existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will say, um, if I could share a quick story. Sure. I, you know, one thing I, I learned in Hoffman was around having experiences that allow you to let go of things and the value of that and being like really paying attention when those experiences happen. And for me, the experience that really allowed me to release Shannon into just the ether and no restriction um, was the fact that I ended up having my daughter, giving birth to my daughter on Shannon's birthday. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah, nothing about that whole situation was uh, mapped out. And um, the fact that we ended up actually having her on Shannon's birthday, and I had one of the most epic spiritual experiences of my entire life, the the entire uh, 12 hours I was in labor, and I, I was with Shannon, and she was just, uh, she, she was showing me things. I, I don't know how else to say it. it, it the conversation could go a little off the rails. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to share, but it's, uh, I mean, during contractions, she was, she was taking me to another place. Like I felt like my head was in outer space mm. and our bodies were dangling in the earth's atmosphere. And she was talking to me and I understood. And I, I mean, I couldn't ever tell you what she said, but it was, it was a very spiritual level conversation. And when I ended up actually giving birth to my daughter, um, I just, I knew that that was Shannon's way of releasing me and allowing me to release her. And um, my life really hasn't been the same since that night. Wow. So I imagine your kids know about Shannon. Oh yeah. My, my daughter, Phoebe, she, they actually share a middle name. So Elizabeth was both their middle names and every, they also were born on the summer solstice which is the longest day of the year, the day with the most light. And so I always tell my daughter the whole story of um, just of her birth and how it was the most magical night of my life because it was the, it was the day with the most light, even in the nighttime. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah. Aaron Weed, I am so grateful for this conversation. How do you feel? I feel amazing, actually. Thank you so much for... I don't usually talk about any of these things in my typical interviews. So it's, it's nice to, to dip into my story and cause it, it really so much of what I do now and what I've created in my life now, it, it goes back to two girls fight back and to losing Shannon and to having this daughter on that birthday and then going to Hoffman process and all the, all the crumbling that had to happen in order for, for the light to creep back in. It's, it's been quite a journey. Do your parents still think it's a cult? No, no, not at all. In fact, they they want to go. They want to go. I've I've threatened to uh, <laughs> make that happen a few times. So they're very curious, and they're very, uh, especially my mom. She's incredibly open to healing, and 
they're both in their seventies now. And, um, I admire that about them. They weren't so close to stay closed, you know, a few years ago, um, uh, I had a student who was 81. I think Mm. that's about the oldest. That is So so tell them it's not too late. Yep. Well, and you know, the gift you give your, your pat, your next generations, when you do the healing work yourself, I mean, that is such a, I mean, maybe that's the biggest contribution that we could make in our lifetimes is to heal. I hear you. We talk about patterns being generational and, mm-hmm. and part of what we do during expression and the whole process is we say, no, it, it stops here. It stops now. No more. I'm not passing this down to the next generation. And if I do, which part of being alive is our humanity then I'm going to repair and clean up that mess and rewrite the story for the next gen. Yep. Yeah. I've made it a habit actually with my children to point out my patterns to them. Openly calling them out. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Wow. Yeah. It's for me, it's a a way to hold myself accountable, but also for them to know that, Hey, I'm in process. I am a deeply flawed individual who is trying her best. And, and I see I see where my patterns are and I don't want that to become your responsibility. And I think they appreciate it. What's the rest of the day look like in this odd time of social distancing and sheltering at home? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is an interesting time. Um, I, well, first of all, I just want to name, I, I feel I have tremendous privilege in the sense that yeah. I have steady work and I don't, I am not worried about, my health or, or financial crisis or, you know, things like that. So I'm, I'm grateful and compassionate to those who are having a very different experience. So for me, uh, life is, is creating and going deeper into my work, writing, making art. And, um, and I've been trying to do a lot of, create a lot of free content for, people who follow me online and and just give them an opportunity to do more training. And the hope is that if, if everybody knew their purpose and if everybody remembered who they really were, then life just becomes a a game about alignment, you know, the more aligned we are, the more fulfilled we are and the more fulfilled we are, the better our relationships are and the less our patterns even pop up in the first place. So that's kind of my contribution right now. And, um, a lot of, lot of quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a real time of introspection. Mm. What a contribution to help people find themselves. Yeah. All right, we could go on forever. We sure could. <laughs> Aaron, thank you for this conversation. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.